If you brought your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If this is your first Sunday with us in a while, we started earlier this month a new series called Sermon on the Mount, where we are going through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 this summer as our teaching series. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest teachings of Jesus compiled. Um, it's His big thoughts, his the big themes, he, he didn't unpack them, but he, he hits all the big ideas. And we're going to spend the summer going through these. These teachings are kingdom values, the way to live as the people of God, their high standards. And, um, and some of them are unachievable without the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And some of these kingdom values are upside down or opposite of the world's values. So if you have your Bibles, we're, we're going to uh, start out in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 6 is our, our verse today. Week 1, we talked about uh, how they are blessed, those who are poor in spirit. Uh, th- that is how we enter the kingdom of God, is when we discover that we're actually broken without Him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we talked about how when we find Jesus, it does produce a mourning in us for our past life, but He comforts us because He gives us a new life. And then last week we talked about blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, uh, meek doesn't mean we're powerless. Meek doesn't mean we don't have a voice. It's the opposite. We do have a voice. We do have power. Uh, It's just surrendered to the the leading of of God's Holy Spirit. And today's verse is verse 6. says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who... Who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I said filled, but satisfied. Um, we know what hunger and thirst is, right? It's an appetite. It's a longing. It's something that that we we desire. It's a craving for something. Like, and we crave or we have appetites for things we need and for things we love. The craving is for both. We have cravings for physical needs. We have cravings for spiritual needs. We have cravings for things we need and things we love. It's like this, you know, we, we do three services here, and by the end of this service, I'm really hungry, and I need to eat, and I leave the third service with an appetite. So do you, because it's, you know, past lunchtime. Unless you had a brunch or something, you're probably hungry. So you have an appetite to go eat. You need that. Now, my normal Sunday groove is we preach, we do three services, we encounter the Holy Spirit, we get hungry after church, and we do what all hungry people do, we eat, we need it. Then I go home, I take a good at least one hour nap, sometimes two, then we kind of linger or hang out with family or something like that. But around evening time, my craving moves from a need to a love, and I love ice cream. And almost every Sunday, I will, will drive to Frosty Dance in Albion, Michigan, and we will, I will get a vanilla with a burst of, not cherry, raspberry. Oh, I love it. Oh, so sometimes I get the orange sherbet and mix them, and I love it. I don't need it. I love it. And that's what cravings are. Of course, Jesus is not talking about stuff for our stomachs. He's talking about the longing of our souls, the cravings that, that we really want. Satisfy in the Greek means to feed, to fatten, to fill, to be satisfied. And my question for you today is what are you looking for that satisfies your deepest desires and longings? What 
is your soul craving? What are the appetites that you have? And what are you using to fulfill those longings and cravings? Some of us, it's clothes, it's shoes. And we get our affirmation so much by looking good, some of us will go into debt to get look good. Because we love that compliment that we get about our purse or that watch that we're wearing or the shoes that we have on. Some of us, it's our family, it's our children, and, and we put an expectation on our kids in a way they should perform. And, and if they misbehave, and somehow it feels like an indictment against our parenting but because we're looking for the affirmation from other parents of how good a parent we are. And it's the wrong kind of craving but we want that affirmation that I'm a good dad, I'm a, a good mom. Some of us, it's social media. A lot of us, I, I would say we are a, a selfie culture. We, we, we post things that are going on in our life, and, and I'm been, I've been guilty of this, so I'm not judging. I just want to know if I'm not alone. I will post something going on in my... And, and I feel like in my peer's intent, I don't care who sees it or not. And just, you know, it's just out there that, that I did this. But then an hour later, I want to see how many likes I got. All right, you know, am I alone? I'm not alone. You do this. You do this. You look back and like, oh, oh, I got ten thumbs up and you're happy. And you, you get a hundred. You posted a great post. You get a hundred thumbs up. But isn't it interesting? It's not just the hundred that we get. It's the one thumbs down or the one angry face. And we're like, oh. Why didn't Jimmy like my posts? And we get this weird sense of affirmation through social media. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's your work. It's your career. You're looking for that, that next promotion. And in the moment, it feels good. But then after six months in it, you, you're, you're unsatisfied again. And you're asking, what can I do? How can I do more? Uh, maybe it's you're, you're, you're a workaholic because you can never seem to get enough an account. And it is your account balance and your savings or your 401K that's bringing you your sense of security. And that appetite's never satisfied. Some of us, it's ministry. Right? It's not enough that we have a relationship with God that somehow we want approval of other Christians around us. And I got to be, uh, I got to have this position in ministry so people know I'm smart too. I know some Bible too. Uh, some of us, it's education. Right? It's getting that degree or that doctorate or I'm an attorney. And this affirmation through achievement and certificates and credentials and resumes. We feel good. Some of us, it's using other people. It's sex. It's pleasure. And we're trying to fill an emptiness that we were, can never fill outside of God. You know your soul is starving when you do all of these things and it's left you unsatisfied, disconnected, and lonely. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The, the things that you want your soul filled with, the cravings of your soul, can only be found in Jesus. All other things will leave us unsatisfied. So today I want to talk about what happens when we look for satisfaction outside of Jesus. I want to talk about, well, what does he mean, righteousness? And then what, is, what does it mean to have an appetite for that righteousness? And how do we actually produce it? So the problem with self-fulfillment, number one, is it always leaves us unsatisfied. 
Relationships aren't bad. Careers are not bad. Having an education, that is a good thing. The things I mentioned are good things. But if we're looking to them to get our sense of fulfillment and our sense of self and our sense of identity, it will always let you down. Marriage is a good thing. I am married. I love my wife. She loves me. But we make terrible gods. So if she's looking to me to fulfill her, I'm looking to her to meet some need that only Jesus can do. We will let each other down, and we have. When we look for fulfillment outside of Jesus, it always leaves us dissatisfied. It leaves us unfulfilled. And the reason why is because we cannot find our fulfillment outside of Jesus. I love what C.S. Lewis says. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This Everything in this world is going to let us down. You can enjoy all the things that I mentioned if it's in if it's in when we have a right relationship with God because he gives us the ability to enjoy it. But the fact that we're actually seeking those things and then they leave us unsatisfied, telling us there's something else. If you find yourself unsatisfied and unfulfilled in this world, it's because you are craving the real thing. You're craving something else, and it's Jesus. Isaiah 55, 1 through 2 says, Come, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come. Invitation. See how many times the Lord's saying this? Come. Come. Buy and eat. Come. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me. Eat what is good. These things are talking about, you know, he's talking about physical things, you know, honey, bread, things of that nature. But only God can offer the nourishment that the soul needs. And he's asking the question, why spend money? Why spend your life? Why spend your time on what does not satisfy? You know why we do it? Because it doesn't satisfy, it pacifies. It leaves us fulfilled just long enough, and we think it's doing the job, but it's not. It is like, I went to Walmart this week, knowing I was doing this message, and I picked me up a little, little pacifier. This one has an elephant on it. You know what pacifiers are, right? They're made for the infant who's trying to communicate to mom, I'm hungry. And so we put, pop this in the baby's mouth. And it's pacifying them. This is what we do with our soul's cravings when, when we're seeking affirmation outside of God, identity outside of God, looking for the wrong opinions, and it's pacifying us. So we, we start a hobby. This is doing the job. But we get bored. Like, that don't, that don't, that's the wrong hobby. Maybe this one will work. So we get another thing. We get another career. Move to a different city. Oh, this is oh, this is what I needed. And then we get, and then eventually, like that doesn't do it either. This one here, I found out first service actually glows in the dark. I got a glow in the dark spaceship. Like, oh, that's what I need. I need the next thing. The thing that glows in the dark. That's gonna be the one. Mm, that satisfies me. This feels good. This is it. And after a while, the baby's like, Mom, this ain't working anymore. 
Why? Because it's craving the real thing. And this is what we do with our faith. We get that job, didn't work. We seek that relationship, that was unfulfilling. It's pacifying and we're just eating all the wrong things. And God's saying, I'm your nourishment. Stop looking. Take the pacifier out of your mouth and come to me and I will give you something that actually satisfies. But this is what we do. Our souls are craving something more real. And Jesus says, you're craving the right thing, the righteousness that you need. So what does righteousness mean? Now, as I was preparing for this, every week this has been happening with the Beatitudes. I'm learning it means so much more than I thought it meant at the first read. And when you break open commentaries on righteousness, it's pages. So, and I don't have time, for, we don't have time for pages today. But I do, wanna, I do want to share a few thoughts on what it is before we talk about the hunger and the appetite for righteousness. Number one, righteousness is the, the standard God sets, the right things. Righteousness is the standard God sets. Righteousness means in the Greek, equity, justification, righteousness, justice, justified, um, I wrote this down. Righteousness is the state of truth and the reality commanded by God because he has the highest authority. Righteousness is the standard that God sets. He can do that because he is the highest authority. You and I, we, we don't get to create what is the highest authority. You know, it, it, right, the, the problem in our culture right now is we are setting standards based on our feelings, based on our own opinions, based on self, based on maybe some certain studies, and now we're trying to interpret that and what that means, even if it's contrary to God's word, and we're setting up our own standard. When you don't get to, we don't get to be the standard because we're not the creator. We're the created. He's the creator. And we're the created. The creator gets to choose the standards. And by the way, his standards are good. They are pure. They are for you. If God has given us a standard and a way of living and how to be righteous and how to live well, it's not to withhold from us. His laws are not demands that he's keeping something good from us. It's actually the opposite. He's trying to get something good to us. And he gets to set the standard because he is God. And what we have done in our culture, it used to be 60, 70 years ago, if our feelings did not align with God, we adjusted them to God's image because we're made and created in his image. So if there was something incongruent with our lives, incongruent with God's way, we would adjust to it because it used to be God's, God's authority was valued. And now that's no longer the case. We flipped it. And now we become the standard. And instead of, so now when there's something incongruent us or our feelings, we start shaping God into our feelings and we've reversed it but we don't get to. We think we can. And so now here we are seven years later, and there are things happening in our world. Our, our world is turned upside down. It's gone crazy. It's a strange new world now. And you ask someone in their 70s and 80s about the things that we're doing with, with the definition of marriage and, and being able to choose gender, and I'm not poking fun. Don't, I'm not trying to make a, saying something funny. It's true. 
they think we've gone nuts. Because they come out of a culture that actually valued the authority of God. And now we've become like God. Or we think. And we've shaped God into our own image. And we are setting standards that was never created for us to set. And when you start setting standards, watch out. That culture is about ready to fall apart. Because there's nothing sacred anymore. The prophet Isaiah seen this in his own day and age, and he warns us. Chapter 55, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Even in our brokenness, even though we're, we're rebelling against God, rebelling against his standard and his righteousness and his ways and his decrees, he still loves us and said, I'm still here. Come to me. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts, our feelings, our own opinions, our own identity that I'm shaping and I feel and I want. This is who I am and who are you to tell me? None of us are telling you God is. He's the one that gets to set the standard. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. See, even in it, he's saying, even if you just acknowledge it and come to me, I'll forgive you. I will bring mercy to you and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Now, this is, this is insane because he could demand, I want you to repent and I want you to make up for it. But he doesn't. He says, I'm just going to pardon you. If you acknowledge my ways are hired and you come to me, you repent of your wickedness and realize your thoughts are unrighteous, They're not the standard I've set for you. I'm going to freely pardon you. Verse 6, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Let me ask you a question. Who has the highest authority in your life? Self or God? All of us, our souls are craving the truth. Not a truth. Not a standard. Not the world standards. Not truths. We are craving the truth. The way. The life. We're craving Jesus. Only he can satisfy what our soul is craving for. What is righteousness? It's a standard of living that God sets a sacredness, a holiness. He gets to set that because he has the highest authority. Number two, what is righteousness? Number, a second thought on this is righteousness is right standing with God through grace. When we give our hearts to the Lord and we decide and acknowledge, yes, I am sinful. Yes, I do have unrighteous thoughts. Yes, I, there is wickedness in me. I can't even live up to the own standard I set for my own life, let alone God's. So how could I ever fix that? The only way is if there's some type of unrighteousness imputed to me from God himself, which could only happen through grace. So when we acknowledge that, he actually gives us his own righteousness just as we've never sinned. This is radical. And no other religion claim makes this claim except Christianity. All other religions say this. You must have good works to even have hope of getting into heaven. And it's just a hope. A wish is a better word. Because real hope is an anticipation based on something real. But a wish 
is a fairy tale. I wrote this down. Imputed righteousness happens when we transfer hope from our own works, our own self, to the blood of Jesus we're given righteousness. Titus 3, 4 through 7. At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived. You know, what we're experiencing in our culture is deception. This, uh, we get to create our identities. It's based on how we feel. And um, that somehow taking the unborn's life is a choice that women have. I believe in women's rights, equal rights. Is every equal right a man has, a woman should have. They, God is, they're created in the image of God. It's just like man is created in his God. One isn't higher than the other. We both are needed, male and female. He created them both equal. We have equal rights. I believe in that. But I don't believe anyone has the right to take the life of another, even if you, you're responsible to carry that life. It's a deception upon our nation. And it's been since the time, it's nothing new. When Moses is born, what happens is Pharaoh wants to kill all the babies and take out a generation. When Jesus was born, Herod wants to take out a generation. In, in, the, in ancient times, uh, they would sacrifice to the God of Moloch, which they would sacrifice their own children. And we've just cloaked it under science. We've just cloaked it un, under, uh, you know, we're more advanced, we're more civilized. No, that you are a human being at the moment of conception, and we are deceived thinking otherwise. Well, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Because what happens is the child becomes an inconvenience of my pleasure and what I want. And I, I've heard the argument, and I didn't mean to make this this. I didn't even say this. You guys always get something different. I don't know. I just feel maybe more ramped up because of the Red Bull. So uh, I've, it's been said, like, well, what about rape? And that's kind of a hard one. And the reality is, is less than 1% of abortions are even about rape. And then, and then the other argument is, well, what about, what about you know, the life of the mother? And if, if it's going gonna, it's gonna to die, she's going to die. Even that falls under the same category. It's like less than one. Technology is so advanced now that it's really unlikely that you're going to die of a pregnancy. They, there's just, it's just advanced. Much. The pregnancy is not going to kill you. They know, they know how to do that. The other argument is, well, what about if the child doesn't have a chance because of its poverty. And I just think, like, I don't think any poverty, economic value, does not determine the person's value if they have life or not. It's not, in, it's not an income thing. We are deceived. We, we are deceived. I know two people that I, I met personally, Pam Stencil. Pam Stencil, her mother was raped, tried to have an abortion. I believe, I know at least once, it might have been twice, but she tried an abortion and it didn't work and she took it as a sign from God to carry this child and she became an, an advocate of, of pro-life and Pam will tell you, why do you think I don't have a right to be alive because of how my, how my life was created by my father's evil? Another one is James Robinson. 
He's the man we partner with every year to build wells in Africa. You could argue if James, his mother, tried to abort him, makes the decision not to, and he lives. And he becomes, he builds wells, hundreds of wells in the, in the continent of Africa every single year, giving water where they have no access to clean water. You could argue that doesn't happen if James dies. And uh, he was a result of rape. So I'm like, man, this is heavy. What's well, the reality we're living in? And we are deceived. At one time, we too were foolish. That's not even a point, sorry. The disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by kinds of passions and pleasures. We've lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Have you seen the hate this week? But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done. Getting back to my point. Righteousness is when we are in right standing with God because of his grace, not because of what we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and the rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace... This word justifies mean to, to render you as innocent. But we are not innocent. He tells us we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived, we were enslaved. We had all kinds of passions and pleasures that didn't line up with God's word. But now we've been justified. We've been rendered innocent by his grace. That we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Scriptures teach us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. God's standard and his righteous holiness, his purity, is way beyond us. We can never achieve it, and yet it's required. He says, I am holy, therefore be holy. <laughs> Who could do that? We can't. It's impossible. Unless someone above us renders us innocent. I have a an acquaintance, his name's Darren Wendell. Darren raises money to build wells in, uh, in other nations. And one year, I think about 15 years ago, he decided he's going to swim across Lake Michigan to raise money. He does it. It's 50-some miles. He does it in 36 hours. He swims across Lake Michigan. And uh, he didn't, I, I think maybe the last, like, 100 feet, the tide, he couldn't swim against the tide, so they actually pulled him out of the boat. But he basically swam 50 miles. That's a pretty big deal. And uh, he does it. He ends up in the hospital over it. I mean, it just like tore his body up to be able to do it. And he's, he's ran from uh, California all the way to New York, a marathon every day from California to New York. You can Google this, Darren Wendell. And then I got thinking about it. Darren in his own effort, which is amazing, to swim 50 miles in 36 hours, never getting help. It's pretty, pretty impressive. What if Darren gets a couple of his friends and says, guys, you know, that was a big goal. What if we go from California to Hawaii? I think we could do it. And we know that's nonsense. So one guy might be able to do a mile. I couldn't swim no mile. When I was a kid at 17 years old, I tried to swim to the, the island at Eagle Lake in Battle Creek, Michigan. And it didn't look very far until I was about halfway out in that lake. And I thought I was going to drown. I get to the island, and I'm like, how am I going to get back to the beach, you dummy? Like, you swam over here. Nobody is over here. 
I did it, but barely. Prayed. Someone goes a mile, they're going to drown. Someone really fit could probably do 10 miles. Darren, maybe 50 miles. I calculated based on his swim in Lake Michigan. If he did 50 miles at 30, uh, 50 miles per 36 hours, it would take him 75 days nonstop. The distance is too far. For us to be made righteous with God, we cannot achieve that. This is the beauty of Christianity. God says, I will do it for you. You don't have to earn righteousness. It is, it is just imputed to you if you acknowledge your brokenness, acknowledge your need of a Savior. I will forgive you of your sin, heal your brokenness, and then empower you to live out that faith. But righteousness is right standing with God based on the acknowledgement that that distance is too far. Salvation is based on Jesus' ability, not our own. Your good works might make you a good neighbor. We may, through our own righteousness, make good choices and live a better life, make better decisions. That, That may happen. It might make us a good person. But these don't make us fit for heaven. Only Jesus. We are made for God. We are made for heaven. But only Jesus is the oasis that our soul is craving. This is what righteousness is. A holy standard that God sets. He invites us to that standard. But we can't do it. The distance is too great. So he does it for us. And he imputes his own righteousness upon us. Then, that's what righteousness is. Then there's a hunger that rises up. If you say yes to the gift of, of salvation, there's a righteousness appears to us. Now, it's like a two-sided coin. We say, I need you. I'm broken. I'm wicked. Heal me. He implants righteousness in us. And then the other side of it is we start hungering for that righteousness. What is that hunger? What's that appetite? Number one, it's a longing to please the Father. Not to get approval from him, but because we're already approved. Because there's already righteousness imputed to us now. Because there's a gift. Now I long to please him. Martin Luther says this. I'm going to read it twice because it's clever. We do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds. But having been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. Are you seeing the difference? Say it again. We do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds. We, Having been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. It's his Holy Spirit in us. It's a seed he plants in us of righteousness. And the other side of the coin is it produces righteousness in us. It's a gift of salvation that he gives us. But the other side of the coin is there is an expectation to live righteous. It is a relationship we're invited to, but it's a lifestyle that happens. This is what it means to have an appetite for righteousness. 1 John 2, 28 through 29. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have the confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. 
Notice that it's saying that we practice, it doesn't say we practice righteousness to get born. That we are actually born of God, and that's why we practice it. It's a byproduct of knowing him. Another verse is 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of what? A pure heart. It's not because you have a pure heart. It's because righteousness was imputed to you, so now he sees you as pure. And out of that, there is now a desire to please the Father. The best example that I have to, sh- to share, and it just takes um, an honesty that I don't want to share, but it helps, so I, want, I need to share it. Um, in earlier days of ministry, you know, I, let me just say it differently. If I'm not going to engage in pornography, which I would say is unrighteous, right? God sets a standard for purity, so I will set no unclean thing before my eyes. It's kind of weird now because of the, the advent of the Internet. It's almost like become normal. Like, oh, yeah, everyone looks at pornography. That's not normal. That's unrighteous, unholy. You're awakening love prematurely when God says hold off. But let's say I don't do it because I know intellectually, that if I engage in this activity, it harms my wife. And because I'm an associate pastor at a church, if I engage, it actually, I could, I could lose my job over this. So I don't engage or look at pornography. Even if I'm drawn to it, I won't do it because of what it means and the outcome of it. It'll damage my marriage. It'll, it'll damage my work. It'll damage my income. There's all these reasons. So I don't do it. And it produces, and it looks like, oh, good job. You're not looking at something you shouldn't look at. But it's not out of a pure heart. At 35, I discover I'm loved. Like, I knew I was loved, but I didn't know I was loved. 35, ooh, that's great. Come on, Mom. (laughs) I know I'm loved at 35 years old. So here's what happens. At 35, I'm so in love with God, I lose my appetite for this. And I don't look. I don't want to. You see, the, the outcome's the same. But how it comes is where it's coming from, a heart of a purity, because we know God. And when you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. You want this outcome, not that. Because this one's self-effort. This one's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which leads me to the second one. What does it mean to hunger for righteousness? One is the longing to please the Father. Because you realize you're loved. I just want to please him. Not to please him, but to please him. Because I'm loved. Number two, a hunger for righteousness is a desire to obey the impulses of the Holy Spirit. When you have a, a, a real hunger for the things of God, you actually become more in tune with the Holy Spirit. And as he prompts you, as he convicts you, as he speaks to you, as his impulses he gives you, you're filled with the righteousness of Christ now, so the result is a greater sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. It's what you, you want to do. Two sides of the same coin, right? A seed planted in you produces a fruit. Righteousness is a gift and also an expectation. Righteousness is a relationship with God but it produces a lifestyle that we live in, and that lifestyle is hearing his very voice. 
Philippians 1.9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and the depth of insight. So that, this is a prayer by the way, he's praying what? That you will be able to discern what is best. And may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Does it come through your strength? It comes through the strength of Jesus and to the glory of God. A hunger for righteousness is one, a longing to actually please God. I want to please God. Not to get his approval, but because I'm already approved. Not to get his love, but because I'm already loved. Not to get freedom, but because I'm already free. So now I long to please God. Two, when I have that longing, I keep having other encounters with the Holy Spirit. And I obey it. And the more I obey it, the more I'm understanding and discerning what is best. Because there, there is what we want, and then there is what is best. Our Easter series, Wildly Different, we invited a guest. His name was Nate Meek. Nate came and shared a story. And Nate uh, had always been drawn to the female gender as a young man. He was same-sex, had same-sex attraction, was dating a guy in college that would, he thought was going to lead to marrying this man. He walks into church. He doesn't want to be there, but mom begged him to go, so he wants to please his mama. So he goes to church and has an encounter with God. Now, he knows the church's view on marriage and homosexuality. He's not turned off by it. He just knows that's their view, and I have my own. There's the church's view, and I got my view. But somehow in the environment of God, he's drawn, and he says a prayer. Now, that prayer, he doesn't stop the relationship. He still has these fleshly desires, but he's getting a deeper intimacy with God, and he's more drawn. He's reading his scriptures more, and it's like drawing him to God. And he told me one time, he said, what, he said, while I was dating this man, I'm pursuing God. And he said, and I was just losing my appetite for that crowd, for that community. He said, and he said, I remember being at a party after giving my life to Jesus, and they said to me, are you even gay anymore? And in his opinion, he was going to stay in that. But as he was drawn to the Lord, he started to discern, that's not what's best for me. You seeing this? He had a hunger for righteousness, and it started changing him as a person. Now, the world would say, and, and the community around him would say, no, this is who you are. This is who you're supposed to be. Reject that. They, the community would tell him, reject Christianity, because that's telling you. And, he, and no one in the community was. There wasn't like a pastor saying, brother, this is what marriage says, even though it's true what the Bible says about marriage. But they weren't doing that. They were just loving on Nate. And the love, he could see the reality and the realness of the authenticity of this side. And he, and he was sensing the manipulation on this side. And he would tell you today, even though he's married, happily married, the Lord gives him a, a, a wife. He has four children now out of that marriage. And he would say, I still struggle with same-sex attraction. But I am now able to discern that that is not what is best. A hunger for righteousness actually produces you a longing to please God 
Not because he's a, please man, you know what I want. Someone said, that's not what we mean. Actually, out of purity of heart, like, no, I, I really think he knows what's best for me. And Nate would tell you he was, he was, a, he was building his own identity. He was creating his own. That's what we're doing now in our culture. Who do you want to be? What gender do you want to be? Who do you want? And, and so we create our own identity, but it's not God's opinion. I think it was Jackie Hill Perry who she, she was same-sex attracted, and there was a Christian man in her life who loved her deeply. She couldn't figure it out, but she said, I started to realize God had a higher opinion of me than I had of myself. And so I started being drawn to God's opinion, and my heart started shaping to his identity. And so she gets married to this man, and she still has, like Nate, same-sex attraction, but they realize that's not what's best. What is that? They're seeing the standard of God, and it's not judging them anymore. They're actually drawn to that righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the right standard, the right kingdom values, the right way to live, for they will be satisfied. The world's, what the world is telling us, church, this is who you are. Create your own identity. How do you feel? Live out of your feelings. Your feelings will lie to you. They're an indicator something's going wrong, but it's a terrible thing to master you. They're great indicators, but not great masters. And it takes the discernment of the Holy Spirit to know the difference. I feel this way, and it's an indicator. My soul's craving something. What is it? It's Him. He'll give you that freedom. He'll give you that identity. He'll give you that that purity. He'll give you that longing. But it starts with knowing I need Him. We're created for intimacy with God. And Jesus is the oasis that our soul is craving. How do we cultivate this? I can't teach this today. So all three points will just be up on the screen. One, actively read and obey God's word. I had someone ask me recently, in almost a sarcastic tone, it it wasn't in like a, it was just in a negative way. They said, do you really believe a 2,000-year-old book? Yes. From the index to the maps, I believe this book. It'll change you. I don't, take my life and try to get this book to shape what I want. I take this book and shape my life to it. Second Timothy says something about it. It's, the Bible says something about itself and this is what it says. All scripture every bit of this book is God breathed. This book is alive. There is life in these words. It is God breathed and useful for teaching for rebuking correcting. And we don't like that part. We like the teaching. I want knowledge. I don't know if I want it to correct me. I mean, I'm saying that in like third person. I do want it to correct me personally. And training in righteousness. This saying will tell you the right way to live. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Number two, prioritize environments that will stir the right appetites. You need to be in places that stir the right things. Church, I believe, will stir you on to good things, kingdom things, kingdom values, God's ways.
when I was playing in the bars, I invited a friend, his name was Joe, and he had had just overcome alcoholism through AA. He wasn't a Christian, but I said to Joe, I said, hey, come, I'm playing at the Grizzly Bar tonight. You got, you got to come see me. And he said, Mike, he said, asking me to go to the bar is like throwing a log in the fire and telling it not to burn. What he was saying is that's not the environment that's stirring the right appetite in my life. Thank you for the invitation, but I'm going to decline it. Bad company corrupts good character. Get yourself in godly environments and godly company that will stir you to the right things. This was a straight on tell it like it is message. And I know it's not popular. Christianity is no longer proper. Christianity is no longer popular, but it's right. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His way is the way. There are no other ways. Let's say this. Can I just ramble for a second? Just and I'll be done. There's essentially three worldviews. Atheism. Kind of under that category is like no belief in God, don't know if there's a God, agnosticism. All that would kind of fall under that worldview. Then there's polytheism, which is many gods. Uh, Buddha could, uh, Hinduism, Buddha, like all these uh, uh, spiritualness, uh, Zen, like all of these, uh, invent your own gods, or like just everything is God, like all of these, we just, poly, well, how, create your God. That's a worldview. Hinduism, uh, I'm drawing a blank, but you kind of understand polytheism, many things. And then monotheism, which is one God. So there's atheism, it's a worldview. And I understand under those three are made lots of different categories, but basically you either fall there or you believe in many gods or monotheism, which is one God, and only three religions believe in monotheism. Christianity, Judaism, and, uh, Muslim, and Islam. Those three are monotheistic religions. All of them claim to come from Abraham. All three. So even in those three still points to there is one God, one creator. You have to realize what category am I in and not all three can be right. Only one of them is right. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. There, no one can come to the Father except, so he's making an, a crazy claim like this is the way. This is the righteous way. Acts chapter 4, there is no other name given to humanity by which we must be saved except through Jesus Christ. That's an incredible claim. And we have to wrestle with that. Is that true? Or was he crazy? Jesus did come to earth. He claimed to be God. He died crucified on the cross for our sins he died and rose again three days later proving himself to be God it's true our spiritual hunger and the things our soul craves can only be satisfied 
and the one who is the way and the one who is the truth and the one who is the life. Jesus is the oasis that your soul is craving. We have as much of God as we want. Are you asking? Who is your Savior? Would you bow your heads? I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus today. If you do not know Jesus, don't leave today without giving your heart to him. And you may think, well, I don't like this. It's actually love to tell you the truth. And you can decide, do I want that or you can reject it. But the promise is eternal life. If you reject it, it's eternal life separated from God in a place called hell. It's a real reality. Do not go there. Say yes to Jesus. I'm going to count to three. And when I say three, I want you to lift your hands. And you're just, by lifting your hand, you're saying, I recognize my own unrighteousness. And I want God's righteousness imputed to me. You can do that. If you acknowledge it and you actually want to repent, he'll rescue you. I'm going to count to three, and I just want you to lift your hands if you're ready to give your life to Jesus. One, two, three. Quickly lift up your hand. Thank you. I see that. Anyone else? Thank you. Let's pray together. I want you to repeat after me. Jesus, I recognize I'm unrighteous and that my thoughts, they're not yours. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin come into my life I want the righteousness of God make me a new person and help me live out my faith for you and Father I pray for everyone else in the room I just ask today Father for those of us who are walking in the purity that you've given us, I pray, Father, that we would have a real appetite for the things of God. That you would empower us to live out our faith in a way that pleases you, in a way that honors you, in a way that increases your voice in our life. We want you. In Jesus' name.